Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we'll be talking culture. Culture is one of the key ingredients to building any successful brand. So for the next few days, we'll be exploring this topic from all different angles, from how to connect with niche groups to sneakerhead culture to today's topic, how to build culturally iconic brands. Today, we're talking to Colleen Berg, Senior Director at the Palmerston Group. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Sister Merci for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing to... Oh, sorry. I just have to think for a second. How did I get into it? <laughs> Are you part of any? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. The people I know have been. So I guess that's sort of part of that. Uh, it depends how like liberal we'll be with the word cult, but I definitely have friends that have gone through like the landmark training. Um, yeah, I've had uh, friends who that cult that just got uh, exposed in Vancouver recently with Ranieri. Oh, I don't know that one. Lululemon, isn't that a cult in Vancouver? <laughs> uh, well, yes, and Lululemon does the uh, the landmark, but Nexium. So I know some people who were part of Nexium. Uh, that got me more interested in it. But I was interested in cults back in high school, uh, and I think you know, just like I was interested in subcultures. But you know, I work in qualitative research. I'm just vastly interested in human behavior and what drives people and what brings people together. And cults are a great you know, uh, epicenter of extreme behaviors. And I think you can always uh, learn a lot about what's on the fringes and the extremes uh, when you're looking at what's happening more in the collective and mainstream mainstream mm. culture. What, what do you think defines a cult? Like what is a cult? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing because when we think about cults in our culture, it's an, it's generally a negative thing. It's associated with isolation and brainwashing and lack of agency and extremism and fear and the lack of ability to leave, um, which is not how we want people to associate with brands. So, but it's interesting when we talk about brands, culture, a positive thing. It's, it's, you know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, golden benchmark, the gold standard that you want to reach if you're a cult brand, but you certainly wouldn't say the same. Uh, if you were talking about a movement in society. So in this way, I would argue that capitalism is the negative cult. You know, the capitalist machine is the cult that we're all a part of. But how brands operate with it, within that, there's things that we can learn from cults that actually create positive brand associations, uh, not negative. So well, let's leave the negative stuff to capitalism and think about the positive associations that we could learn from what really is of interest, I think, to brands when it comes to cult is how do we bring people together and create loyalty? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, are there specific brands that you have in mind or are you going to talk about kind of the traits or? Yeah, I think there's kind of like five traits as I was thinking about this that you see in uh, human cults that you also see uh, in brands and brand communities. So the five that I think of, and we can go through them one at a time, but purpose-driven, uh, there's a price of entry, 
There's a routine regimen or ritual of some kind. There's an access to a secret and there's a language. And those are all things that you see with cults, but you can also see with brands. And not all brands are able to tap into all of them. Uh, and some categories, it's easier than others. So if we're thinking about the purpose-driven, that's a little bit obvious. You know, that comes through in your vision, in your mission, in your tagline. What is that larger idea or value or quest for meaning and purpose uh, that the brand associates itself with and, you know, rolls out throughout its culture, throughout its innovation? What are those touchstones and cornerstones that it really relies on? Uh, to drive its business forward. That tends to have more universal appeal, uh, but is also relevant to the business that it you know has some authenticity there in some way. Yeah. And I feel like some brands, I mean, I feel like all brands try to do this now and yeah. some do it well and others fail miserably. So do, do you think it's about ensuring that it's kind of seamlessly weaved through everything? Like when you talk about touchstones and what, what makes for a yeah, good purpose versus bad? Yeah, that, I, I agree with you uh, on that. It needs to be, it's that authenticity piece that, and I know that, you know, we hate that word because it's been used now for brands so much that we need to be authentic. But I think a lot of ways that we were talking about that previously is kind of performative authenticity. How can we convince people that we're authentic as opposed to how can we as a brand authentically live our mission? And that feeds much more into corporate responsibility, into the culture of the brand, into the experience that consumers have with the brand. Like it's a lot more of the um, non-quantifiable elements of a brand. And so are there brands that come immediately to your mind when you're thinking about purpose? Yeah. I mean like Nike. Yeah. You know, just do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That has universal appeal. It's widely applicable. It's not just for athletes. You know, Lululemon has jumped on that more recently after they got pushback on not being supportive of all bodies, but, you know, yoga for everybody. Trying to have a universal appeal that connects to the purpose of their company that isn't exclusive, but can be ownable by the brand. Okay, so purpose-driven. Then there's the price of entry. For cults, that tends to be a real negative thing. Like you have given up some private photos of yourself that they could use against you. There's generally some kind of a blackmail uh, element attached to what your price of entry is. Or you have to, uh, you know, get not be friends with the people who don't believe. Like there's there's some kind of massive thing that you have to give up that creates this really strong buy-in and tie that sort of leads to that isolation. That's not what we want with a brand, obviously, but there often is a price of entry, uh, whether that can be the expense of a brand. So if we're thinking of like luxury cult brands, very expensive to be part of that tribe, uh, or you have to give up time. There's something you have to learn. You, in order to be part of that community, you need to follow their influencers and be on their social. Um, or there's a behavior change requirement. Uh, and you see that with a lot of like fitness brands or beauty brands. And so there's something that you have to do or change in order to participate. And that leads to greater buy-in and commitment. And with brands, that's what can create a loyalty 
because especially with like beauty products and things like that, that then becomes your like routine. Yeah. It's interesting because it feels like it's this whole creation of uh, insiders versus outsiders, like a boundary between. (laughs) Yeah. I think the difference, the difference with cults though, is that if you're an outsider, you're largely unaware unless there's been a whistleblower of some kind. Whereas with brands, you may be an outsider because you can't afford that brand or, you know, whatever the barrier is for you, but you can still participate in its culture by following it online and being aware of its movements. Like I can know who the new creative director is of a luxury brand without purchasing it. I can follow them on social media and join in on that conversation and be up to date on what they're doing uh, without actually being a consumer of that product. So do, do you think that's kind of a conscious thing where they, they expose you enough to it to want to potentially maybe know more? And oh, absolutely. It's, it's a carrot. And it also, if you're on social media, it gives you the sense that so many people have access to the brand that you don't. So it creates that FOMO when in reality, there's probably like 1% of the people who are following on social that are actually buying the brand. The rest are just people who are interested, but it creates that sensation that you're being left out. It's interesting because, you know, so many times when you get like a brief from a client, you know, they don't want to exclude people, right? They want to make their brand as broadly accessible and appealing to as many people as possible for obvious reasons. But they also want to make it aspirational. So that's an interesting tension. And that's where I think price of entry can be interesting because it's not always about money. You know, even if you look at like Mac versus uh, PC, there's a price of entry there, even beyond the price tag that you have to learn their system. And then you're kind of locked in as well. Yeah. Once you're, yeah. Yeah. So price of entry is a good way to lock people in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So is the, so is the next one, which is having a routine regimen or ritual. Okay. Um, you know, that's kind of an obvious thing uh, with cults where, you know, that's a lot of the culture that is created uh, is having, you know, rituals um, and expected routines that identify you as part of that group and create that that group culture. But we see that with brands as well, particularly in exercise. Uh, you know, Barry's Boot Camp is very different than F45. Uh, you know, they all have their specific way of achieving your goals that is ownable by that brand. Um, we also see that in beauty. You know, you have to have this cleanser with this toner, with this cream. It's a step-by-step process. But we also see it with things like food brands, like Oreo has created an incredible ritual with how do you eat an Oreo? Um, Or, you know, Smarties, do you eat the red ones last? So there's lots of ways to create, you know, routines and rituals that make the brand a more prominent part of your life and make it more of an experience. That's actually really interesting. I've never like I've never actually thought about Smarties and eat the red one last. Like I wonder where that came from. Like, you know, do you suck them very slowly or crunch them very fast? Yeah, I know it's a it's it's cool though. Like it just kind of because anyone yeah. can make something up about anything. Absolutely, Kit Kat did it. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar, and they've had people breaking it along the lines, but then also breaking it across the whole thing. And uh, a, a difference here is that cults have one specific way of doing things and you have to follow the steps precisely with 
a brand, there is a bit more agency there. They have a recommended order of operations, but there is some ability to have some wiggle room and tailorization and customization for the individual. So it feels more like it's a routine for me as opposed to a routine that I am now subjected to. Then there's the idea of the access to a secret. So with, so with, with cults, that tends to be access to a secret way of life. We have discovered some way to make you happier, to make you more whole, to make you live your best self. I mean, we see this with like from Tony Robbins to Bikram Yoga, right? There are all different kinds of, of ideas of elevating uh, the whole person. Uh, but we see that in brands as well, right? Uh, you see that with like Maybelline mascara. It's not an expensive brand. It's highly accessible, but it is the brand for makeup artists for, you know, achieving the best mascara for all people. So there's some kind of formula that you get access to through that product. Um, or if you think of luxury brands, there's a particular type of tailoring or stitching that they have developed that is unique to that brand. Or if you think of like a Nike, there's a drive, there's an inspiration, there's a community, there's something that, you know, will propel you forward uh, towards your goals by, you know, using that product or being part of that brand's community. It's interesting because I, I wonder if sometimes if these um, secret things, which I guess are kind of like ownable assets in a way to these brands, if, if they can be bad and turned into something good like the most obvious example being you know the all the marmite uh stuff that that campaign about you know whether you, you either you love it or you hate it and obviously there's a very specific taste that comes with marmite mm -hmm. um does that fit into this or yeah i mean that's where like you get it or you don't so that mm -hmm. can be i mean another thing that we didn't talk about was the idea of an in-group Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think things that are uh, like that are more for speak to like having an in-group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Buckley's has the same thing. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying and that there is a secret to the ingredients uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, really speaks to some people or not others and delivers in a way that other products do not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can see that with like Dyson has their specialized engineering. Yeah. It's like something specific and ownable to their DNA or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. Automobiles, how they yeah. drive is unique to that particular car, that particular model. Yeah. But then we even see it in like, you know, things like caramel mm. secret, you know, they had a whole campaign on how do you, the caramel secret, how do you make a caramel? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, because that all speaks to like, there's a craft of some kind, there's an expertise of some kind, there's something they do that the others don't that stands them apart. Yeah. Cool. And that once you're there, you get it too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not withheld from you. You may not know what the formula is, but the benefit of the formula you get, which is a little yeah. bit different than a cult where you're highly aware of what the formula is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so higher purpose-driven, price of entry, routine, regimen, ritual, a secret formula. What's your What's your last kind of feature or there's, characteristic? Of a there's a language. Language, okay. So uh, if you 
ever, you know, done much looking into cults, they always have a language attached to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, about, you know, it's either a language of hierarchy, of titles. Um, it's a language around, you know, benefits and achievement. Um, or it's a language around, uh, you know, their rituals uh, mm-hmm. and routines. Mm-hmm. And language, I think, is a really interesting one for brands. Uh, because there's a number of ways that they come at it. The, I would say the, the lowest hanging fruit is, is hashtags. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your hashtags for your brand? How recognizable are they? How well are they used? Mm-hmm. Then I think the next level up to that is how do you become a household word? So asking mm-hmm. for a Kleenex, asking for a Q-tip, you know, asking for things by a brand name when you know, that brand has, has become uh, the word for the, for the product when the product itself has a word. I Is that, that a good thing way. though? Because <laughs> oftentimes those brands don't want to be the category, right? Because then it means that people will still buy puffs or a competitive brand or a no-name brand and still call it Kleenex. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's definitely a point, a tipping point where it's not working in the brand's favor anymore. But being the first to own that behavior and become the word for that behavior is a good Yeah. 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 The problem is, is that it then also can hamstring a brand and it can make it irrelevant over time. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So that's what I'm saying. That would be sort of the middle level that you'd want to achieve. But the gold standard you want to achieve is when you have ownership of associative words. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. like Disney, magic, kingdom, happiest. Like they own these words that have huge emotional associations to them. Yeah. Cool. And then that, so, that, that then doesn't hamstring them. Yeah. This actually they, feels like they've a, gone beyond. This feels like a cool framework that you could even potentially bring into a workshop. Let's just say if, if you were helping <laughs> a client. I'm going to rip yeah. this up. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's why I wanted to think about it a little bit more. I'm like, I feel like there's a little bit more of a clear path. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Cause then you could just like bring in examples, talk about where there's opportunity, help push it through these different lenses. Yeah. Brainstorm ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. You should package this up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get right on that. damn but you just gave it all away (laughs) so maybe i'll end this with okay i'm curious as to what are your three what do you think are the three most fascinating non-marketing slash brand related cults and why non-marketing or brand well uh Oh, this is going to get me in hot water. <laughs> That's okay. We, actually, did you ever listen to that um, podcast, Sounds Like a Cult? I think I sent it to you uh-huh. like a little while ago. Oh, yeah. And they had some thing. really cool ones. Like They talked about, I thought this one was so interesting. It was like the cult of the royal family. And yes. Then they so I would, like, I would say like the cult of weight loss, I think, oh, yeah, was fascinating yeah. and terrifying. And so ubiquitous and so ingrained, I think, the yeah. cult of Christianity. Yeah. 
is terrifying because no matter what information they are presented with, there is an excuse for the behavior. Mm. Uh, So I wouldn't have said that a few years ago, but with the information we've been receiving about the behaviors of the Catholic church, I find it really interesting. I shouldn't have said Christian. I should have said Catholic. Mm. Um, But it's that uh, presentation of new information that flies in the face of your values that you ignore to uphold that belief system. Yeah. So I, I find that fascinating. And then, you know, I do, I do find the Nexium thing really fascinating, not just because I, I know people who are caught up in that, but because it's newer mm. and it feels like we shouldn't have been duped at this point in our awareness of how these things work collectively. Yeah. Um, and because it was a lot of like professionals, a lot of highly educated people, it wasn't that idea that you think of when you think of like the Manson family or something, which is, you know, drifters who are aimless. These are people who came together with a very specific collective purpose. And you just saw as more and more of their agency got stripped away, they lost that critical thinking sense. And I think that that is, is fascinating because it's the first time I felt like, oh, it could happen to me, which yeah. I would never have said before. Well, I, you know, part of me wonders, like, is, is it because, is it about timing? Like these, these kind of cults reach people when they're in a certain state of vulnerability or. I um, think for me, when I used to think about things like Landmark, which I would argue is a cult, uh, that it was all about uh, personal development I think mm. what's different about the Nexium is that it was personal and professional development. Hmm. Well, there and, is a whole cult around self-help, though, too. Like, yes, I would always oh, venture yeah. to say there's a cult around Brene Brown and vulnerability and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, I mean, I'm not it's, it's obviously not a bad thing, but, like, the amount of times that I've heard people talk about it and... <laughs> And, you know, I even want to backtrack when I originally said the cult of weight loss. I actually would love to expand expand that to the cult of wellness. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's this whole thing about how the pursuit of wellness is actually making us unwell. Like when people are Instagramming about their back-to-back hit classes or whatever. Yes. And for me personally, and I I do get pushback on this uh, from some folks in my life, but the cult of happiness. Mm. And this sense that we are entitled to happiness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that happiness is an attainable thing that has a specific state that is yeah. recognizable and unchanging. Yeah. And yeah. I find that to be hugely dangerous and really, really arrogant and privileged. Yeah. 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 There's so many that, then, then it makes me think of like the cult of therapy and the cult of absolutely um, even of, uh, you know, the great resignation and the, like then, it, then that's almost where it becomes this like, okay, well then how do you define a cult? It's, uh, I mean, I, I would want to remove social movements from cults. I think they're different in what, in what way in that they're changing. Uh, uh, so you know, you I wouldn't say shape. feminists are not cult, are not cultish because what feminist means has changed with the times. So things that that uh, have some flexibility, where their core value may may remain the same, 
but what that actually looks like in action changes. So the theory remains the same maybe, but the practice changes. I don't find that that's the same with a cult. But you could say that about Christianity though. Look at all the different arms of Christianity. Yeah, that's why I wanted to backpedal and say Catholicism specifically, because then otherwise we do get it. We do get into that challenge. Yeah. It's fascinating to unpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And also, when does a, you know, a cult, is it a positive thing or a negative thing? We could argue that AA is a cult because it's so regimented. It's so specific. Um, but it does help a lot of people also. I think they all kind of tap into some sort of insecurity that would you say? Or, yeah, or just the fact that there's just so many insecurities to tap into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like we as humans are pretty insecure. So yeah, absolutely. It's easy to find like a hot button or a weak button. Yeah, and I think we can bring that back to is because as a collective, we're not purpose driven. There's not one thing that drives us all. Yeah, but then if you say I'm driven by happiness, let's just say to be happy, then. It, like the, it's cyclical then because then I could actually be part of a cult. <laughs> yeah, I have happens. no idea where this conversation is going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can always do a part two. Yeah, no, no. I actually, I, I mean, I find this really fascinating because I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's an easy definitive answer. There's not. And it would be, and it's easy to say the wrong thing and then, and then realize after you think about it a bit more, because it, I think it is so layered and it is also very culturally driven. Like what we might see as cults in North America could be hugely different in other cultures. Well, did you, I was reading out. about that, you know, the assassination of the former prime minister in Japan a little while ago. Yeah. Did you, did you read about it? Apparently yeah. that was driven because it was like he, he, the person who killed him, his family was part of a cult and they were giving a ton of money to this church group or something like that. I'm not right. entirely sure how this former prime minister was connected to this religious group, but I think he was like a supporter of theirs or something. But. Right. Like the family in North American politics. Yeah. Or like the, you know, the skull and bones clubs and stuff from like Ivy league universities. Or even the, um, what was that, that biker procession that just went through Toronto last week? <laughs> like that's interesting too. The nude, the nude cyclists. No, 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 no. It was like the Harley Davidson, uh, Hell's Angels. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Hell's Angels are arguably a cult. And the, the, you know, cult of celebrity, like there's just, you can apply the word to so many things. It's just funny how it's one of those words. And I don't think there are that many of them that can be used as both a positive and a negative in equal measure. Well, it's, it's to what you were saying before, I think there's like a tip, a tipping point, right? Where mm-hmm. anything good can become bad. You know, but we I used think to what talk defines really- that tipping point is really culturally um, driven. And so it's interesting to, to see where that tipping point lies. And that's, I think that's why I think the Nexium thing is interesting because they had to bring in the professional development, I think, to legitimize themselves because of the cultural time. Whereas in the seventies, that may have been less appealing than just a spiritual growth. Interesting. Well, I, I am glad that we have, you know, five tips that people can walk away with. That are 
Um, and then, you know, any other questions that, that prop up, you know, we could talk about this. Well, I mean, there is a whole podcast about it, as, as I said, a whole show. So we, we can't be expected to solve it in half an hour. <laughs> no, and no. And if people are curious about cults, I also I highly recommend looking into the Quiverful movement. They are my most recent deep dive. They're highly fascinating to me. So the Duggar family is uh, kind of the most uh, popular sort of example. Uh, but what they believe, and there's a, and I'm not going to get the uh, exact language right, but there is a sentiment in the Bible that says, the more your quiver is full, the more you have, you know, sort of a, the idea of having an, an army for God. So your quivers are your children. So being quiverful is having many children as your purpose in life to have more agents for God. Uh, and this movement is highly popular in homeschooling right now. Um, that's sort of where it's living. It seems that there's about 10,000 quiverful families in the U.S. From, when I, from what I've read. But the thing that's really interesting about them is that their main goal is to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and that they train their members to get into politics. And so there's lots about Josh Duggar, who we now know as a pedophile, but about how they were grooming him to be a politician. Uh, it's, it's highly fascinating because they have a lot of ties to, to the Republicans in the U.S., but they're not highly spoken about because they keep pretty secretive by doing homeschooling. And um, TLC has come under a lot of fire for it because they have essentially funded a lot of this movement by supporting the Duggars. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, rabbit hole to dive down. Wow. Yeah, you just uh, booked up my afternoon now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's quite a few podcasts on people who grew up in Quiverful talking about what it was like growing up in it. Uh, and it's all the purity rings and all that kind of strange, strange stuff. Mm hmm. That'll keep me occupied. <laughs> and my secret belief is that Nick Cannon and Elon Musk are in the quiverful movement. <laughs> that's my that's my secret joke that I say that I say because <laughs> they have so many children. <laughs> well, they also can afford them, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, but I don't I don't know that money is the only thing kids need. But anyway, I digress. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing a super fascinating topic. Cheers. It was fun to talk about. All right. Thanks, Colleen. Bye. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.